Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Hey there, Seth. It's a very interesting level that we're speaking at with our voices right now. I think what we're doing is trying to test out our NPR-style voices. How is your side going over there? I'm speaking very softly like I would if I was on NPR. I would sound like this if I was on National Public Radio. Great stuff, great stuff. So, Justin, tell me about your life. How is it going over there? Life is pretty good. I've started reading a book called The Fourth Way by P.D. Ospensky, who was the late Armenian mystic's kind of chief interpreter. And he writes about a lot of these very complex ideas that Gurdjieff wrote about in regards to the human mind and development of Uh, like human consciousness and what I like about this book is it really breaks it all down and makes it so it can be interpreted and uh, some of the really cool ideas that I'm getting out of it is just kind of the lack of human will that exists and we think we're in control of our lives but often if you really step back and examine things and really think about them it's very mechanical the way that most of us exist and the way that most of our consciousness exists and most of the attention and the way that we actually move through the flow of time, so much of it is rarely actually conscious. So much of it is just dictated by these external phenomena that are just purely mechanical. And so we end up turning ourselves into machines is really the core idea. That What, what are you reading these days, Seth? That description of that book sounds a lot like a movie that I saw called The Adjustment Society, which is based on a book by Philip K. Dick. And Uh, that movie is about a society of people who go around trying to make sure that the plan, in quotes, the plan is enforced and make sure that people don't deviate from that plan. What kind of plan? It's a master plan laid out by, you know, God or whoever you put in those Uh, quotation marks. But this, this society of people go around trying to make sure that people don't deviate from those plans and that... The circumstances that need to happen to make sure that those right actions that those people need to take are enforced and, and happen the way that they're supposed to. And in the book, uh, there's actually a event that happens that wasn't supposed to, and it messes up the plan and insanity ensues. But that also reminds me of the book that I'm reading, which is the third book in the Wheel of Time series, which I'm not sure of the name, but I've been reading them pretty hardcore uh, for the past couple of weeks. And I'm on the third one, and they talk a lot about the Wheel of Time, which is like fate and all the things that go along with fate. And the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. And we're really not in control of, of our destinies, and we kind of are just taken along on the ride and... You know, our destinies are all threads and we're being woven into a large tapestry that is part of some greater 
and more elaborate plan that we have no really idea of what it is. So, it's, you know, some some light stuff, some light easy yeah, reading. Just normal, you know, bus reading, bedtime reading kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I was going to say, those are some very elegant ideas. Yeah, I like elegant ideas, and I try to incorporate elegant ideas into a lot of my everyday life. Kind of like the uh, mass of laundry that is laying on my bed right now that needs to be folded. Yes, you must weave that laundry into a grand tapestry of uh, a plan that we can never grasp because it's so large. Yes, which means it has to go into my dresser. In speaking about this this plan in, in the movie based on Philip K. Dick's book, what, what was it called again? The Adjustment Society. So in speaking about the Adjustment Society, that ties into our interview today with Ashvin Panjarangi of the automatic earth and he's a writer there um, writing about numerous issues regarding complexity in society and um, he archives a lot of those on his blog simple planet but we spoke with him about a series of blog posts he did on the u.s dollar and the way that the financial system of the world since the Bretton Woods agreement in post-World War II really established a system of discipline as it applies to the world. And there's all of these metrics that are used to then incorporate punish, diving off of the philosopher uh, Michel Foucault on his ideas of discipline and punish and the ways that the U.S. dollar drives those home into our minds and into our societies and establishes this plan. And then maybe where in the Philip K. Dick movie in the adjustment society where there would be like these um people who went around and enforced it instead of actually having those physical enforcers what we're seeing with the u.s dollar is that just simply the metrics of you know saving for retirement or your credit score all of these things are those enforcers i think it's interesting that we constantly deal with subjects that are very, very large ones that are really hard for people to grasp. These are not ideas that you normally wrestle with on a day-to-day basis. These are things that as a species and as a global community, these are ideas that kind of make who we are as a society and kind of define us. So with this interview that we had now, we talked with Ash, who is a, is a a person kind of like in the adjustment society who is struggling to find his way in a place where he knows that there's a plan and he doesn't really know the right way and how it's how it's going to finish but he sees that the plan exists and he he can kind of view it from an outside and he's trying to make his way within the context of a larger plan that he's not in full control of and he's a young guy just like us um, he is you know, he's a young yeah, guy yeah in university getting ready to face you know graduate be out in the quote-unquote real world facing all of these same economic decisions that uh, we do as adults in our society and so he comes from that same perspective and he's seen a lot of the same things we have in our generation you know a lot of people who went through the university system sought jobs and are facing those challenges and so i think he provides a really um interesting perspective and one that you know a lot of us in our generation are, are uh, facing right now we are living in interesting times and ash realizes that we are li- living these interesting times and he sees it and he gives us many examples of how our society how we've integrated artificial ideas of how we think the world is into our daily lives which may or may not always be correct and so speaking of interesting times i'm going to go out on a limb and say episode 13 of the extra environmentalist podcast 
will be an interesting time. Now, do you think that we should skip number 13, like on an elevator, and just skip the 13th episode and go straight to 14? The hysteria around the number 13 really doesn't apply to a podcast, just simply because uh, this podcast is not being released on a Friday. That's true. It's not going to be released on a Friday. And in the event that it is released on a Friday, what will we do? We're not going to release it on a Friday. And if it is, then you'll just have to deal with it. So <laughs> look forward to listening to this episode, and we will talk to you on the other side. While I powder my nose, he will powder his gums. And if I try to get close, he is already gone. I don't know where he's going. I don't know where he's been. But he is restless at night. He has horrible dreams. So we lay in the dark. Cause we've got nothing to say Just the beating of hearts Like two drums in the grey Well I don't know what we're doing I don't know what we've done But the fire is coming So I think we should run I think we should run, run, run You know, in my pastime, I was a NASCAR mechanic, and I heard all the motors all day long. But as soon as I found out about the problems with our oil supply, I immediately became an organic farmer. And that's what I do with all my time. Today on The Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with Ash Pondorangi, contributor to the Automatic Earth. You're studying law at George Mason and, and uh, graduating soon, which is exciting, and also a blogger on complexity society at uh, your blog, Simple Planet, at peakcomplexity.blogspot.com, and your articles are also on the automatic earth. I saw a recent uh, series of blog mm-hmm. posts that you had on debt dollar discipline on the underlying world system of money that we wanted to speak to you about today. But before we get into that, is there anything you'd like to add or correct in your bio? Uh, no, I, I think you guys got it uh, pretty much correct. With regards to the automatic earth, I'm actually decided to exclusively post most of my pieces on their site. And then I use the other site, Simple Planet, as an archive. So people can go find the articles later if they want. But yeah, most of my articles will initially appear on the automatic and- earth. I'm just curious, do you have any other hobbies outside of law studies and blogging about complexity and energy in society? I like to play sports. I like to play basketball once in a while. Other than that, not not much really. I, I do play uh, some poker online once in a while. Try to hang out with my friends whenever I get the time. But yeah, most of the time I'm just uh, working on do you, do legal related stuff or blogging. Your peers are interested in the same topics or do they kind of zone out when you start talking about uh, complexity in society and the problems with, you know, our energy systems? There are very few, few of my friends who actually uh, I can talk to about this stuff. Uh, I definitely know a few people who have gotten into it and they kind of understand what's going on, but usually when I'm hanging out with them, we talk about other stuff because most of them aren't really on the same page as I am. Yeah. Maybe let's start talking a little bit about what the dead dollar discipline is, and maybe you can describe what you mean by the triple D. 
the debt dollar discipline used by the global financial system in order to basically coerce people to become financial consumers, to take out loans, to take out debt, to use credit cards, finance their home purchases and whatnot. I use the term debt dollar discipline because it's very similar to the mechanisms described by Michel Foucault in his book, Discipline and Punish. He basically described a society of institutions such as schools, factories, hospitals, military barracks. These institutions coerce people within them to behave a certain way and not to stray too far outside of the normal. After World War II and the Bretton Woods Agreement, which established the dollar as a global reserve currency, this kind of took a whole new phase in which these institutions disciplined everyone to become financial consumers instead of just industrial producers. Yeah, so the debt dollar discipline really refers to the dollar as the global reserve currency, how it's been used to coerce people to become financial consumers. What is uh, Michel Foucault's notion of disciplinary society, and uh, what does he mean by discipline? Yeah, so Foucault was a French philosopher uh, writing in the 1970s. He basically, following the tradition of people like Karl Marx and the whole post-Marxist philosophy movement, which saw the economic relations of production and material resources as the driver of history and of everything else. Foucault saw that with the Industrial Revolution, there was this fundamental transformation in Western states and the institutions of power that they had kind of transitioned from a more open way of power to this enclosed institutions that would condition their citizens to behave within an acceptable range of behaviors. And it meant that you could not be too critical of people in positions of authority. You shouldn't question the mainstream storylines, the mainstream school of thought. The uh, idea that increased efficiency and increased growth is always good became planted in people's minds. These institutions served to reinforce that idea all the time. And so Foucault saw that happening, and he didn't really passed a judgment on it, but he realized that was a fact, and that was how our society was evolving. In drawing on that, how is it that our society has institutionalized discipline in, in these ways that Foucault saw? You know, it's basically pretty evident to anyone who's grown up in a developed country like the United States. Foucault kind of saw it as a linear path where, you know, you're born, you have a family, and your family starts to socialize you, and then you go from that to school, and your school, at, at school, your teachers and professors and coaches and whoever start to discipline you to act a certain way, and obviously you're punished and rewarded based on your behavior, and then after that, you know, either you go into the workplace, a factory, or maybe an office building, and then you may, if you're fortunate enough, you might go to prison or you might go, uh, you might get sick and go to the hospital. And all of these institutions use the same mechanisms and the same procedures to discipline the people within them over and over again and constantly so that it becomes a part of you. Talk a little bit more about the mechanisms that things that the society does to discipline people in a modern society. I guess what one of the things would be performance reviews, whether you're at school or in the workplace. You are basically given feedback on how you've behaved and how you've performed, and 
you were made to feel ashamed or guilty or, you know, uh, unsuccessful if you do not meet the expectations of what's defined as being normal or good or above average. This constant feedback and this constant incentive system will eventually discipline a majority of people to live up to the expectations that they have been given. Following up on that, how has the dollar system that the world has essentially used since the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1945, how has the dollar system helped to further that system and notion of discipline? I think the debt dollar system has it's basically used various mechanisms to do the same thing. For example, I wrote about the credit scores that you get for taking out loans. And so basically, if you don't use enough credit over a certain period of time, then you are charged higher rate later on if you need to take out credit, or uh, you might even find it hard to rent rent an apartment or get a job. These credit scores are basically like grades that you would get at school. They they define how good of a financial consumer you are. Everyone tells you you need to have a good credit score and you need to become a good financial consumer or else you will not be successful and you won't be respected. Um, So what happens to the people who don't respond well to that discipline that society imposes on us? Are these people ever successful in life? Are they are they always kind of shunned to the side or put in institutions? Do they ever make it in this society? Uh, I guess it's hard to speak for everyone. I mean, I'm sure there are certain people who find a way to make it work outside of the system. They're fortunate enough to live a decent life without conforming. But for the most part, I think people who do not conform are institutionalized. In some way, they might be declared mentally ill. They might just be shunned from society. They might be kind of ignored by their family and their friends and other people. They might have a really hard time uh, getting a job. And then these people are kind of the people we look down on. And they're given to us as examples of what we do not want to become. They do actually serve a purpose for a disciplinary society. They provide them with an example of what other people should not be. If there are people that live within the system that don't conform to it on the inside, but, you know, just play along, use the system to, you know, facilitate their needs to get their food and to get their their needs met, but then don't overtly follow those rules? Yeah, yeah I see what you're saying. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to almost consider myself as one of those people who, you know, I've lived in the system, I've followed the rules, I've benefited but I also understand why it's bad, why it's oppressive, and what's happening to me. On one hand, I can say that, but on the other hand, once you follow it long enough, even if you first you know, start out just to get by, eventually you might start believing in it and actually become so attached to it that you really feel like you cannot get out anymore. And, you know, even in my situation after thinking about this stuff and writing about it, it's still difficult to completely detach yourself and, you know, stop playing by the rules. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of 
was ticky tacky and they all look just the same. I like the extra environmentalists because they have such cute boys on there. They really know how to talk. One time I was listening to them when I was making breakfast for my husband, Marty. And Marty said, hey, hey, Gertrude, I really like those boys. And I said, hey, you know, I like those boys, too. And then we listened to the extra environmentalist all morning long before I had to go go to yoga class where I had to put my my tight little yoga pants on and do some yoga. Today on The Extra Environmentalist, we're speaking with Ash Pandurangi, a writer for The Automatic Earth. How do you think that the university system plays into this discipline? And in your experience going through Virginia Tech and now George Mason, how have you seen the process of conditioning and discipline play into you and the students around you? You know, I think it's very powerful at at that level, especially at the uh, graduate level, they just want to convince you and discipline you to believe that there's only one way to be successful, and that is to get a degree and to work hard, to uh, spend a lot of hours, you know, at whatever job you go to, and then go through the motions. And I think the educational system in this country has definitely become representation of disciplinary society than any other institution. They are always directing you towards a certain path and has a lot of ways to marginalize you or shame you or make you feel guilty if you do not follow that path. Yeah. All three of us are in some way have been a part of this system. And to you know be successful, like you said, to be successful, you have to be a part of the system. Do you have any ways that through your experience or through your research that you've figured out that we could make the system better or improve the system? Are there ways that we can get out of the patterns that have been perpetuated over the years to kind of make the system a better place and make it more useful for for people and promote ideas of larger worth? That's a tough question. You know, something we all think about, how can we really do to change the system, to make it work better and to be less oppressive? There isn't much we can do. This is kind of the way that these complex systems evolve, and there's always some level of discipline and power held over other people. Maybe at a smaller scale, you could have a different system or one that's more fair or one that's more transparent or less less oppressive, but at this point, we have gotten to this scale of evolution that no individual person or small group of people can really change the overall structure of the system without without sacrificing a lot of wealth and growth and uh, prosperity. If anything's going to change, it will be changed by the system itself as a natural kind of process and not by any policies or decisions made by people. One of the things that I struggle against, especially with the higher education system here in the United States and in North America in general, is how discipline is imposed through the cost, the sheer cost of going through the educational system. I'm sure you're aware of this at George Mason in law school. Just the cost of going to one of these institutions of higher education is so extremely constricting on possibilities and maybe you could speak to some examples you've seen of of people going through the system that have suffered through having this discipline imposed on them through the just cost of going through higher education you know we're going to see a lot of examples of that in, in the next few years and personally 
I know my roommate, who's also in his third year of law school, had, I think he took out about a hundred, almost a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt for three years. You know, he still feels like he's going to be able to get a good job and pay it off in a year or two, but, you know, I feel like he's really going to struggle with that, and uh, it's going to be a big burden on him for the next few years because uh, the job market's horrible, and there's there's an oversupply of lawyers because a lot of these schools, they just let people in just so they can get the tuition. These people can finance their education through these federally uh, issued loans. Then when they get out on the other side, there are no jobs waiting for them. It's really a big problem, and it just goes to show how the educational system has become thoroughly entwined with you know the debt dollar discipline and this financial culture that we have. We know that this system oppresses people and puts people into debt slavery and all that stuff. Do you think that there is some kind of innate human trait that compels people to follow in these systems that uh, even though they're broken and and inherently oppressive for many, many people, do you think that that, that's something in human nature that it's, it's innate in us to follow? I'm not sure if it's genetic or it's a function of our environment, you know, our group mentality like once you get into a society of humans, you know, thousands or millions of people, you start to see these emergent trends and emergent psychological tendencies that you might not see if you're just a couple individual people sitting around, you know, talking about this stuff. I do think it is a natural kind of process that has been happening in human societies for thousands of years, but I'm not sure if it's something that's predestined or genetic and that it has to happen. In getting back a little bit to the idea of the debt dollar discipline, could you tell us a little bit about what the Bretton Woods Agreement was and um, kind of your understanding of how it played out and how it's resulted in this situation today? The Bretton Woods Agreement, after World War II, a bunch of countries got together. It basically, they decided to establish a currency that would be a reserve currency for um, every other currency and that and these currencies would all be tied to the dollar through a gold backing so that you could always convert dollars into gold and vice versa. And then in order to transact for certain commodities and financial instruments, you had to use dollars. It made international commercial and financial transactions a lot easier. And it flooded the world with this dollar liquidity, which was really debt because every single dollar that's issued is is a liability. It's it was issued for loan. Yeah, the Bretton Woods and then in the nineteen seventies, Nixon unilaterally said that dollars could not be converted into gold anymore. It basically was not backed by anything and that, that allowed even more debt liquidity to be generated through the system. You were talking about the dollar convertibility into gold in 1971 when the Nixon administration uh, revoked that ability. So what did that change in the system when the Nixon administration, I believe it was Charles de Gaulle in France, he said he wanted to exchange his country's dollars for gold and essentially Nixon said, well, actually, you can't do that. And so what did that change in the system? Gold was basically the only limiting factor for how much liquidity could be generated in the system. Or when the U.S. found that it really did not have enough gold reserves to 
uh, back up all the dollars that were out there or all the dollars that were needed, then they got rid of the convertibility and that got rid of any limit to how much debt could be generated throughout the global economy. Right. Um, I'd be interested to know how you feel that media plays the role in enforcing this discipline in our society. I think media has really become the ultimate reinforcer of that discipline in uh, modern and developed societies uh, with consumer cultures. And, you know, the constant advertisements uh, and marketing that we see is really the major or main mechanism that's used to kind of constantly reinforce financial discipline and uh, create needs or wants for people that they never really had before. But all of a sudden, they're seeing these uh, advertisements, and then they feel that they need they need these services or these goods. And the only way to get them is to take out debt. Yeah, the media media has been the best mechanism for forcing that discipline. Hey man, you ever hear the extra environmentalist? It's pretty cool. Today on the Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with Ash Pandurangi, contributor to the Automatic Earth. So, what makes now such an interesting time is we've been living in this post World War II economy for a long time. We've been living with this debt dollar discipline, but now things are changing. And so how do you see the collapse of the debt dollar discipline playing out in how it plays out? Do you see it playing out deflationary or hyperinflationary? Or are these terms even relevant to the discussion? Uh, maybe you can go into that a little bit. First of all, you know, we should note that it's almost impossible to predict specifically when and how things will break down. And so, I, so you know, a lot of people out there kind of make specific predictions about when the market's going to crash or, you know, when the credit markets are going to seize up. And I really don't think that's something that we can do, uh, given the complexity of the system. These types of complex evolutionary systems go through certain phases. I talked about Holland's adaptive cycle in the, in the articles. He was applying them to forest ecosystems, but I think they apply just as well to human economic system. So we went through a phase of unprecedented financial growth where wealth was created and uh, standards of living went up and you get increased specialization of functions within the economy and also increased interconnections between uh, different parts of the system. That's really what has created the instability that we see now. The subprime housing meltdown in America made its effects felt throughout the entire global economy. There's no more appetite for debt in private economies in a developed world. People just do not have the incomes and the money to uh, take on any more debt. So the system will start to break down because it needs more and more debt to roll over the previous debts and to keep growing. So as that happens, stock market credit market, real estate markets, everything that's dependent on debt will uh, also start to deteriorate and uh, lose a lot of value. Specifically, I don't think we can predict exactly when or how that will happen. 
what you're saying is on that hauling adaptive cycle, we're entering into the release phase or in the forest metaphor, essentially when the forest, say, gets struck by lightning and burns down and then the pine cones release the seeds from the heat? Or is there any reason to be that optimistic about it? I think that's about right. It, it, it is, it's a rapid and it's a catastrophic event. It will happen much quicker than people expect, and it will be on a scale that I think uh, most people are not ready to deal with. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about a literal uh, comparison to the adaptive cycle of ecosystems. I think we... We'll probably be in the conservation stage right now, but on the brink of that release. You know, it could happen any time now. I've heard that Hauling himself describes the release phase as a very optimistic thing, saying that, well, in every ecosystem, there needs to be a release for there to be the reorganization. And then we can transcend all of the outmoded, brittle structures of the past and then move into these new uh, adaptations. Do you think the collapse of this financial complexity means more explicit control on society? Or do you think that perhaps it means that we can finally transcend this debt dollar discipline? I guess that's really the most fundamental and important question we can ask right now. I tend to think of it as ultimately a long run, a long term good thing because this is the natural process. This is what needs to happen. And, you know, we have lived in a, a global society of oppression, inequality, you know, injustice, and people are dying because of it. You know, people may also die because of the relief. Ultimately, it's the only way to get back to any sense of a sustainable society and a just society. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people out there who think this release and this crisis will provide an opportunity for certain people, certain elites, to, uh, you know, concentrate even more power and wealth and uh, kind of create a 1984-style, you know, oppressive global regime. I'm writing about that right now. My feeling is that there's too many unknown variables for any human beings to control with the financial crisis, the uh, energy crisis, the environmental crises we have. I do not think they will be able to overcome all of that in order to establish a global order and uh, more control. So in that sense, I'm optimistic that we will get rid of the oppressive system that we have right now. And I think that's kind of the the message that is encouraging because there's all of these people who are, you know, the paranoid conspiracy theorists. Alex Jones is an example. You know, always the New World Order and there's this secretive elite group that's plotting all this stuff and all of this stuff's under control. But then when you take a step back and you look at all of the variables that you'd have to control to make that happen, it's just mind-boggling that any one group of people could control all those things. And at least in my own view, I feel that there are these groups of elites who are sitting back plotting and trying to control things, but they're less of a, kind of an overarching power structure and more just one more group trying to control things and, and failing at it, just like individual people try to control these things and then life goes in all these different directions. I, I don't know. It, any thoughts on that? Thinking about it right now as an individual, I can definitely see that history and common sense kind of tells me that there have been these global elites that have been concentrating more wealth and power 
and they are planning to do that in the future, too, and they are aware of all of these uh, crises that we face. And, you know, since 2008, we have seen inequality get worse, and we have seen all of these policies for the benefit of the elite at the expense of everyone else. That definitely makes sense. You do kind of have to step back and uh, step out of yourself and kind of take this much bigger picture view of, you know, what's going on on this planet. You can kind of see how these things are beyond the ability of any group of humans to just control it at their will. From that perspective, I do think some of the NWO conspiracy-type people are, they're very informed and they make a lot of sense and they know what they're talking about, but I think they are still missing a part of the bigger picture that they're kind of unwilling to see at this point. We've seen a lot of rumblings in the Middle East, in Egypt, and in Libya with people rising to overthrow the regimes that are in place there. And a lot of that is being credited to connectivity, increased connectivity through uh, the internet and social media. What role do you believe that those new technologies will play in helping to organize the, the people of the world in kind of combating these themes that have oppressed them in the past? I really do think they have played a significant role in all of these things to this point, and they could in the future as well, especially in developed countries where, you know, social media is very heavily used. Once again, that's a tough one to call because you also heard stories of you know, the Egyptian government shutting down the Internet and uh, blocking access to various sites. So, you know, the Internet basically is a complex network that has evolved alongside the rest of our complex society, and therefore it's just as unstable and prone to disruption as, you know, the financial system. I think it's tough to tell whether the Internet and social media will really be something that people can use on a massive scale or whether it will be shut down. I really can't say either way. It's kind of hard for a populace to make war on another country if that country can tweet about it and can have direct contact with that warring nation. There's a disconnect right now between places that don't have that connectivity and places that do, the first world countries. When you add that dynamic of being able to contact those third world countries where that, where that violence is occurring, does that not make it harder for that warring country to bring violence to those other nations? See, I'm not sure. It, I guess it depends on how much the people in charge of the government and the military care about what other people feel and even what their own citizens feel. At the end of the day, I mean, they will impose martial law and they will, they will use their militaries however they want to, regardless of what their citizens say, what other people say. But ultimately, I do think that will come back to haunt them. I don't think it will work out in a, you know, very organized fashion where they just take over and uh, everyone obeys them. I think, obviously, uh, that will lead to a lot of social and political disruption. How can I be sure
You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with Ash Pandurangi of The Automatic Earth. The kind of mainstream narrative about a lot of what's happening in, in North Africa and the Middle East right now has to do with social media and that connectivity. I wonder if it's really indicative of the debt dollar discipline breaking down because a lot of people wonder why the U.S. has been so supportive of these oppressive regimes, but then as those regimes are breaking down, suddenly gas prices are going up so much. And then that says to me a clear connection of why the U.S. has supported those regimes is because it has been good for the economy. It's uh, kept oil prices low. I don't know. So what are your thoughts on on those competing narratives? I agree completely with the latter narrative where this financial financial breakdown is basically what's leading to the social and political breakdown. It's no coincidence that food and energy prices are going up, uh, you know, while the Federal Reserve is launching these massive quantitative easing programs and funneling money to banks who can use it to speculate on stocks and commodities. I really see this, these economic trends in these countries is not really a factor of energy scarcity at this point. It's a factor of governments doing everything they can to conserve the system, prevent it from imploding on itself. But it's happening anyway. And, you know, their policies create unintended uh, consequences. And so they have to kind of adapt themselves and flip their script and start supporting the revolutions and supporting democracy, as they call it, in these countries. Uh, Obviously, they've supported the dictators for decades. Now they're just doing whatever they can to preserve their image, keep things together. It's definitely becoming more and more difficult for them every day. Maybe moving forward and kind of our wrapping up question, what kind of trends do you see playing out for the debt dollar discipline in the future? And maybe in a broad sense and what can we expect moving forward the next, you know, ten, fifteen years? I guess I would just say in terms of the debt dollar discipline, I think it's pretty clear that it's over. The dollar will not remain the reserve currency. People and global finance as a a means of economic production and, and exchange will not even exist for after 10 years. But, you know, obviously the exact timing of all of this is uncertain. When you factor in issues such as peak oil, climate change, everything related to that, you can kind of see that things are becoming smaller and things are going to become more localized. Complexity is definitely going to be reduced. And really global finance, to me, represents the tail end of this evolution of complexity uh, of our complex human society. So it will be the first thing to go, I think. After that, the extent to which our society decomplexifies, that's up for debate. 10, 20 years from now, I would not be surprised if international trade as a concept really was not even around anymore. Countries really barely transacted with each other. So maybe on that yeah. note. <laughs> Hello, it's so extreme. <laughs> so, so, Ash, tell me uh, your favorite stock tips for the, for the next week. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I buy Apple <laughs> as, much as, as much as it you can get. <laughs> cool, definitely. So um, in, in wrapping up, I'm wondering if you have any insights that you've gained on this whole situation throughout your law school education. Is there any way that law school has opened your eyes to all of these dynamics? I think law school has a lot of people 
joke about how lawyers are corrupt and, uh, you know, unethical and all of that. Honestly, it, if anything, that's an understatement <laughs> because the <laughs> whole legal, <laughs> the whole American legal system is, uh, to me, it only serves one purpose, which is to, you know, make the rich richer, to make it easier for those in power and those with wealth to get what they want and oppress everyone else. In that sense, yeah, it, it has really shown me how oppressive this country really can be. I think it's tough to, you know, criticize people and say, to, to tell my friends who are lawyers or who work in finance that they're doing something wrong. I feel like once you, once you understand what's going on, you have to stick to your values and your principles and do the right thing no matter uh, how difficult it may be. So, you know, that, that's, that's what I'm trying to do at this point. Are there any closing ideas that you'd like to leave us with that maybe we didn't get across to in the interview? No, you know, I think we uh, touched on uh, everything I wanted to talk about. I think that's it. I'm glad we uh, got a chance to talk about all this stuff, and I appreciate you guys taking the time to do the interview with me. We'll look forward to more of your posts on the Automatic Earth. Maybe in the future, in a few months, we'll have you back on the podcast to talk about some of the other ideas you've been discussing. Yeah, definitely. Do it again soon. Thanks so much for your time. All right, so that wraps up our interview with Ash. I thought he really hit on uh, a lot of interesting points that we have maybe touched on a little bit in some of our other episodes, such as our interview with Helena in episode nine and talking about economic systems, but he provides a different perspective. And so what do you think that perspective lends, uh, Seth? Ash is, a, is in law school, so he comes at it from a very legalese kind of way. He sees the world in terms of the legal way of seeing things. So his way of interpreting global financial systems and the debt dollar discipline comes from from that perspective. I think as he points all of this out, how these ideas of uh, Michel Foucault really play into the way that the dollar has established this discipline is important because the key message here is that the discipline system is breaking down. And around the world, all of these governments, all of these people are trying as hard as they can to prop up and put these structures in place to reinforce this debt dollar discipline. And sure, the U.S. dollar underlies it, but the euro is part of this overall grand system. All of these currencies around the world all plug in to this system. It's like when you have an operating system and then you have all of these different applications that run on it. In a lot of ways, the U.S. dollar is that operating system. The idea of fiat currency is that operating system. And then there's all of these other applications that run on that. And maybe it's not a perfect metaphor. It doesn't connect perfectly. But it's the idea that we're getting across that as that operating system, the pieces of it, I guess, catch viruses or even begin to fail, then all of these applications are failing along with it. And Perhaps the applications will fail before you see the overall failure of the operating system, but eventually, because it's the hardware that's running the operating system that's failing, it's going to break down as well and take everything with it. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time, and there's shocks that look rather drastic, but 
you know, it's one of those things where you can look back in a decade or even a half decade and say, wow, things just changed dramatically. We've been seeing those changes in the news as as the months go on. And we've been seeing peak oil in the news and we've been seeing how large corporations are kind of manipulate the system. You know, we have whistleblowers in WikiLeaks and we've seen how the national government is very much incorporated into that Wall Street market that Wall Street system and is very much behind not letting that dollar fail. And I mean, the whole world is pretty much behind that. We've transferred a lot of those problems that we've had in our country to other places in the world, and they've all been feeling that. We've seen very realistic examples of those things in the Middle East as people there no longer want to be kept down and made to live a life that is not what they see on television. They want those things that people here in developed countries are able to have on a regular basis, and they they want those things, and they're demanding those things, and they're no longer accepting the fact that they are second-class citizens. I was reading an article um, from Micah Hanks, who writes for Adbusters a lot, and he was saying that if you want to see our future, look at these countries, because these people don't have anything to lose. They've reached the point where, because of spiking food prices, they can't afford to eat. And once you're hungry, you absolutely have to face that reality of the economic situation. And sure, it's been bad before, but you could always kind of get by as long as you could put food on the table. But the problem is that now, as those food prices go up because of a large number of extenuating circumstances, the droughts in Russia and uh, transportation costs due to oil cost increases and, and all of these things, those costs are going up. And so Micah was saying how, if you want to see our future, just look there. And the reason we haven't started to rise up in the United States quite as much is because we still see ourselves as obedient consumers. We still buy into that identity that's packaged and sold to us. You know, that's a challenging thing to overcome. But then again, do you really want to go through that revolution? That's something I always think about. Like, perhaps there's a brighter future on the other side, but it's a really big decision to actually start going through with something like that. And changing systems is never a pleasant time. And there's always going to be casualties along the way. To support an entire system that is based on a sole finite commodity that is not something that's going to be pleasant to move away from that is not going to be pleasant to move away from and there's going to be a lot of people who are not going to choose to live in a world where they don't have access to television and hamburgers on a 24-hour basis or ipad 2s ipad 2s those things are pretty cool huh so justin tell me about this new video you got going Yeah, so a friend of mine here in Vancouver and I put together a video redefining the notion of progress in society. And so we entered that into the OECD 50th anniversary video challenge and it got selected. It got shortlisted for one of the top 20 videos submitted in the world. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Seth. And so what we need are votes because if the video receives enough votes, it will be in the top three vote-receiving videos. And from there, the video would be selected to actually be screened at the OECD meeting so economic planners from around the world would see it. And wow. then we would have an opportunity to go and meet with all of the economic planners at the meeting. So, so that's pretty you get, cool. If you win, you, you get to meet up with some big names in the economic planning world. Yeah, and talk about how things should be different, the kind of things that we talk about on the podcast the kind of things that we spoke about with Helen Norberg-Hodge 
and uh, many of our other guests on the way that our society is structured, our economy is structured, and the way it really should be different. So our video is titled Progress is Sustainable Well-Being. Uh, we interviewed a professor here at UBC, Bill Rees, the co-developer of the ecological footprint concept, uh, as well as another economist, Frank Rotering, who's written The Economics of Needs and Limits. Justin, if somebody likes listening to you and they want to make sure that you talk to some big-time economic leaders in the world and get your opinion heard, how do they vote for your video? Well, they can go to www.extraenvironmentalist.com and under the episode 13 show notes, we're going to have a link. Or you can go to Google and just type in OECD 50th, that's 50TH, anniversary video challenge. You can find the link there. I could say I have the whole URL, but it's kind of complex. So best things to do are Google or just go straight to the show notes. It's a good thing that we have Google in our society because now we don't have to think ever again. Yeah, no complexity. Just Google. Just Google. Yep. And also, uh, speaking of Google, we have been getting some Google-like picking up of our downloads this month, haven't we, Justin? We get a daily email of the podcast stats, and I was looking at them. That, what did they say, Seth, the end of March? Well, at the end of March, we had close to 6,900 views, 6,900 individual downloads of our show. And how many unique visitors did we have? I don't remember. It was just under that. That was pretty incredible to see that so many people out there are downloading the show and finding it. And honestly, I don't know how everyone's finding it. I look at our webpage traffic and it's not that huge. So I think looking at the stats, it looks like a lot of people are subscribing through iTunes and other podcatchers. So thanks to all of the new people who are coming out and subscribing to our show. And if you could go online to iTunes, rate the show, leave a review, let us know what you think, and uh, put up some thoughts so that other people can find the show, say similar things uh, about the podcast to their friends so that even more people can listen to Seth and I discuss crazy things. Just to put this in perspective, in the in the month of February, we had 735 downloads. We've had so many more in the month of March. Yeah, that was about 10 times our, our listener base. So that's pretty crazy. But actually, we're a few days into April now when we're recording this. And we've already seen well over 1,000 downloads this month of the podcast. So really unbelievable uptake. So we're really glad that so many people are listening and to all our new listeners, throw us some comments, shoot us an email, or give us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. So definitely let us know what you're thinking about the show. If you hate it, if you love it, if you've showed it to all your friends and you know your grandma really likes the show and really thinks that Justin is quite conversationalist, we want to hear about that. That episode number 11 with Jack Alpert, that is required listening for your grandma. Every grandma must listen to that. Well, sit down with your grandma, make her a cup of tea, you know, sit on the couch and just pop in episode number 11 and listen to the, the mellow tones of Jack Alpert telling us about population reduction. All I can say now is that Seth and I are just going to keep recording interviews with interesting and insightful people and keep extrapolating their ideas and keep churning out new episodes on a semi-regular basis. That we are. And Justin, we have new business cards, don't we? We do have new business cards and they're very exciting. I just contributed to resource depletion in an excellent way by ordering a thousand business cards that actually had extra environmentalists misspelled. Don't tell people <laughs> that. They don't want to hear about our mistakes. Unfortunately, I can't give them to you, Seth, and then you edit out the error like uh, uh, we usually do with all the audio. 
Well, if you would like a misspelled business card, or if you would like one of our non misspelled business cards, come see Justin or I. Or if you would like a stack to pass out to your friends, let us know and we'll provide you with those. If you're going on a, a cross continental flight and you can find a way to throw some out a window, you know, do that. If you want to print them up on your own computer, we can provide you with a template to do that as well. Because mm-hmm. I know so many of you would like to print up our business cards and hand them to your friends. <laughs> if you'd like a non-paper way of reaching the extra environmentalist or contacting Justin or I, please visit our website at extraenvironmentalist.com. Send us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com or call us on our Extra Environmentalist phone number. And that is plus one, 919-701-9872. 919-701-XTRA. In addition to our phone, we have a Twitter handle, which is xenvironmental. You can come see all of our tweets and we would really like to have you as our friend on Facebook. So come to their, our Facebook page and like our Facebook page. Or post links, post books that we should interview the authors from, throw us ideas, or just critique us in a very constructive way. Or not so constructive. We like to hear yeah. cursing. Yeah, rants are also fun. We've been queuing up so many interviews over the last month and started to record those. So our next episode, episode 14 of The Extra Environmentalists, will feature a discussion with Dave Montgomery, author of Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. And so we dive into a lot of topics on soil and the way oil plays into our agriculture and so many fascinating insights about soil and ancient societies and how it affected the way that those societies organized. So stay tuned and we'll have that episode out very soon. So if you uh, enjoyed what we do, let us know. And we would like to thank you for listening to our podcast. While I put on my shoes, he will button his coat. And we will step outside, checking that the coast is clear on both sides. We don't want to be seen, no, this is suicide. But you can't see the ropes. And I won't tell my mother It's better she don't know And he won't tell his folks Cause they're already ghosts So we'll just keep each other As safe as we can Until we reach the border Until we make our plan To run, 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 run To run, 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 run
hoping that ship would never land. Oh, it was sad when the great ship went down. When the great ship left England, she was making for the shores, and the rich decided that they wouldn't ride with the poor. So they put them down below, and they were first to go. Oh, it was sad when that great ship went down. Last time it was sad, so sad.